The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course. And it's produced with the support and encouragement of my patrons, listeners who enjoy the show and let me know with a financial high five. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, I'll let you know how at the end of the episode. This week, I'm speaking with Carrie Clausen of Pink Elephant Creative. Carrie is a warm and generous, lovely person who helps other warm, generous, lovely people create kind and beautiful businesses and websites. I connected with Carrie over the telephone. She was at home in Toronto, Ontario. So Carrie, I read a quote not long ago that said, justice is what love looks like in public. And it made me think of you right away because so many little bits of generosity and charity and um social justice matters are kind of woven sneakily (laughs) throughout your business. And, you know, anybody who spends time on your website, Pink Elephant Communications, or anybody who's following you on social media around uh, creating a kind business would know that social justice is really a deeply rooted value for you. So you have somewhere on your website the story of how you went to India and you were working with mothers there and one of the little details in that was that a lot of them really in North America we would consider them children. Can you just tell me how you first of all found yourself going to India to volunteer to teach women in shelters there? Mm. Um, It was one of those things that just happened. Uh, I was turning 35, I think, and I decided I wanted to spend my 35th birthday doing something um, meaningful. And I had always wanted to go to India. And at that point, my business had been around for a couple of years, so it was sort of established enough that I felt like I could leave it for a bit of time and it could support me while I, while I did some volunteer work. And I wanted to do something that was um, applying, you know, the skills that I have and sharing them. So I was going to be teaching English. I'm a writer, so language obviously was a nice fit there. And I had done some English second language training years before. Uh, and computers. Um, in this part of the world, when you end up in a, in a shelter for abused women, you really are abused in, in horrific ways because as these girls explained to me, um, I mean, they were shocked when I said my husband had never hit me. Um, it was just a really different way of life from what they had known. And um, How old are these girls? When, like, are they... Like 15, 16, 17. Wow. The, the young, well, some of them were, I think the youngest was 15. And then they went up to, I think, like 20. Wow. Um, yeah, but they were, yeah, they were young. They were so sweet too and so eager to learn and to stroke my hair and they wanted to braid my hair and you know do the things that girls do and I would imagine that I I mean just as you're describing that it's like I remember 15 I couldn't have possibly imagined handling 
marriage and uh, violence parenthood. and parenthood and, yeah. and uh, yeah. you know belonging in you know another person's family you know when you marry somebody it's like this is you know the dynamics of that kind of blow my mind so there you are and you're with all of these girls and they've endured horrific abuses how did you feel uh humbled and um uh, i felt such admiration for them that they were just these really strong women at that point i i had just gotten married a few months before um, so Eleanor, my daughter was not even an idea yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't really have a full grasp of, of even motherhood, but one of the, um, one of the girls, she had, uh, two children, two sons, and she asked me if I would take them, if I would raise her boys and give them a better life. And, um, at the time I was awed by that. And now, as a mother, understanding what kind of uh, sacrifice that would have meant and what kind of love that would have meant, and uh, I mean, at that time, it was beyond my comprehension, and now it's even, you know, more so. So these were these were people, these were women that um, had certainly not had an easy time of life, and yet were triumphing in, in really incredible ways and the people that I won't ever forget. So that girl who said, will you take my sons? I mean, like, yeah, that breaks my heart. Uh, right. How does that come up? Like, is that the first thing she says? And then, <laughs> and then you're, you're like, why would you ask that? Or, or, you know, how did you actually come to hear their stories? Were you, were you like sitting in on a group sharing? Did they have therapy? Or were you just like teaching English and asking them like, so tell me about your son. And it's like, they launch into the story. Like, I'm just curious how that comes up. Are they wanting to talk about it? Or were you piecing together the, the details? How did that come about? Some of the, most of the girls did not speak um, really any English. They maybe had a word or two, and I didn't speak Hindi, so we would, you know, I would teach them words with picture books and things, and they would, they would teach me the Hindi equivalent, and then they would mock me for my ridiculously bad pronunciation, because I, yeah, I, I, I would have to work at that. Um, the boys were always there, and it was very early on that... Um, she had sort of hinted at it through one of the other, um, one of the coordinators there would sometimes come with me while I was doing, I would come every day and we would do like an hour together of uh, language and computer stuff. But really we just sat around and kind of did girl talk as best we could with gestures and things. Um, and so she had sort of, sort of hinted at it, but I hadn't been quite, written that I had understood and then towards the end when it when I knew that my um, time with them was coming to a close she would ask me to hold her children um, more and then through this um, another one of the coordinators there asked if, mm-hmm. if I would um, they did not see people from other parts of the world very often so it was really there when I was there I mean they'd not seen a woman with blonde hair before mm-hmm. and so I just had sort of the appearance of somebody very different. And the fact that I could travel, the fact that I knew how to read, the fact that I had been to school, I mean, I just had so many 
advantage of this is that I um, really hadn't thought much about, um, but these women could see in me, and she knew that I had means that she would probably not in her lifetime have access to, and that just seemed like, um, I don't even know that it was me so much. I mean, I would like to think that she thought these were carrying arms that she was putting me into, but I think I also represented opportunities just by virtue of, of my own very different life. As you are describing all of the privileges that we would take for granted, I imagine that yeah. for her, they seem like a ticket to safety. You know, like that for her boys, she, that it would be like, oh my gosh, wouldn't that be wonderful if this kind woman would save my boys from fear? Because she, yeah. you know, she was um, in a very dangerous situation. Right. And so how does a sensitive person like you cope with this young girl making that ultimate sacrifice? I know you said that at the time, you know, you probably conceived of it differently, but now that you think back on it and you're a mother and you know the kind of love that must have taken, how do you cope with that? Because it's just, it's so much tragedy and you're so sensitive. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're all sensitive. Um, some of us maybe just wear it on our faces a little more, yeah. uh, obviously. But um, I think, gosh, how do I answer that? It was hard. It was wrenching. I mean, the, that trip for me was, um, oh, my God, so incredibly powerful and important and transformative and there are all kinds of cliches about traveling to India and um, I lived one of those cliches because I, I I found so much of myself there I mean these young women taught me so much about myself mm-hmm. um, I think doing something I mean it's not that they needed me to help them or that I really did anything but I think um, there is something about humanizing a problem or, or getting to know people and their stories within those problems that helps it become more, um, not that it makes sense. I mean, as much as I, I found that time so, so sad that, that anyone should live the kinds of experiences that these young girls, these innocent young women had experienced. Because I also got to see how strong they were and how brave they were and how they were managing. They weren't victims. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were horrible things that happened. Um, but they were, they were okay. I mean, they were, you know, and, and there's something about taking a big problem that seems overwhelming, but meeting the people and seeing the faces and knowing how they're doing and that makes it a little bit easier and being able to connect with them and, you know, these girls hugged me and kissed me and taught me to tie a sari and became my friends for a time. And um, so I think that that helped. It wasn't, I wasn't, it wasn't all pity. Um, that would be kind of awful. And it just, I don't know. And a different kind of love. You feel a, a love for people and that's, uh, I guess a connection when you can connect with people in their suffering. There's also something beautiful about that. I think, I don't know if that quite answered your question. 
I don't know if I have an answer. I agree with you that there's something beautiful about it in a way. I mean, I, I can really, I respect what a big soul it takes to cope with those things. And the fact that they're mm -hmm. just, they're still experiencing joy and love and, and uh, you know, fun and girl talk and things like that. Right. It's really inspiring. Yeah. So when you are in your um, home and you're with your family, do you ever have those pangs where you think about, oh, here I am, my husband and I are like walking our daughter Eleanor to the store and, you know, like, do you ever think about those girls and think, hmm, you know, oh I wonder gosh, what they're all, doing now. All the time, all the time. I mean, it's, um, I, since I came back, I mean, there were just so many little things. Like, I can turn on a tap and clean safe water comes out mm -hmm. every single day, you know, like, that's crazy. That's crazy that I have that. And I haven't really ever thought about it before, but then I spent time in a place where that, you know, that wasn't possible where I can buy flour at the store and they have to grind all their own corn I and mean, little things like that, which is not, I mean, one life isn't better than another, but I just have, there's so much ease that I hadn't acknowledged before, hadn't been aware of. But those girls, they were five months old that I felt a really um, close kinship with. And not after I left, not long after I left um, the shelter, they ran away. And the women who looked after them were deeply concerned for them. I mean, they were even they were vulnerable in the shelter, but at least they were safe from mm -hmm. the men who were, you know, haunting them. Mm -hmm. um, and out on their own, they had their freedom in a way. Um, but there, it was also so dangerous. And they were so young that they didn't. You know, like when you're 15, you think you're invincible and mm -hmm. no matter what kind of life you've had. And so, yes, I often think about them and wonder where they are. And those boys, you know, they would be, they would be much older now. I hope that they're in school. Um, I had wanted to pay for their education, but it wasn't possible with the, after they ran away. Right. Um, we couldn't track them down. And so, yeah, there's just that thread was kind of mm. dropped. And yet, not. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of it. Mm -hmm. And so you have a number of different, you know, initiatives and ways that you try to make change in really grassroots ways. You do, you ha you frequently have little things that show up through your, mm -hmm. um, your business and just the way that you can create action in the world. It seems like you're really using your business as a force for good. And so mm -hmm. I'm curious for, you know, like, you, you have the school of kind business, you, you do a, um, a lot of your discussion is a, is sort of geared towards your tribe, which are very heart centered, sensitive people. And, and I love yeah. being part of that, but at the same mm -hmm. time, it's interesting because like, you sure have a lot of resolve, like even just being an entrepreneur <laughs> takes quite yeah. a lot of moxie, right? <laughs> like, and, you know, you do marketing and sales copy and business plans and money stuff, you know, like these are not things yeah. that for the faint of heart. So have right. you always kind of had this dynamic tension where on the one hand, you're this like creative <laughs> free spirit, but on the other hand, you're like really determined and tackling hard things in kind of a soft way. Has that always been you or, or did, was that, did that emerge at some point in your life? No, that's always been me. Yeah. I'm both um, right and left brained and I have, yeah, my whole 
you know, career. I've alternated between these super creative jobs and these really strategic jobs. And I need both parts of my brain working. But I think it's kind of the rebel in me who wants to take marketing, which is this, you know, growth thing and business and commerce and money. And, you know, there is this whole school of spiritual and quotation marks um, that say these things are, you know, bad. And I think they're not. I mean, I think the ultimate creative challenge in terms of business is figuring out how we can make commerce creative, but also kind. And how can it be this, um, just this engine for, for good and for social change? I mean, I think um, nonprofits are wonderful and I've worked in that realm. And I think there's nothing wrong with receiving money and paying for the roof over your head and, you know, having, having, nice things, however you deem them. I think that there's something really wonderful. I'm going to talk about this a lot. There's something really beautiful in in enoughness. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can have these little businesses that support ourselves and our families in a a comfortable way. I mean, I think that comfort is good, um, but that also can can do good things. So they can be, um, they can provide service to others who need them. And then beyond that, we can, you know, we can raise money for charities. We can um, support causes that are, are dear to us. We can do it. We can kind of do it all mm-hmm. if, we're, if we're clever about it. That's right. And I, what I think is interesting is you surprised me when you said, you know, you're coming at it from uh, this, you know, perspective that in many of the in much of the discourse around spirituality there's resistance to abundance wealth or or money or you know making things transactional and so you're trying to overcome that and where I come at it from is that in so much of marketing and business they try to sort of uh whitewash it as spiritual and that makes me Mm. crazy and so yeah come at it and meet in the middle (laughs) (laughs) where it's like you know what I just want to make this thing and I just want my business. I don't need to have hundreds of thousands of people on my list and I don't need to have tons of followers. I just need to have enough. And uh, you did a wonderful newsletter about like really a business needs like a couple hundred clients who really care. And uh, that, you know, is definitely a uh, guiding light for me. And I, did you read the, that it was kind of like a manifesto and I can't remember the fellow's blog. Um, might have been on Technium or something like that, but it was the thousand true fans philosophy. No. Oh, well, his whole thing was like, you know, you need a thousand true fans. And he was talking about the music industry. And it's like, you know, mm-hmm. you have a thousand fans that are going to drop 20 bucks on you this year. You're doing like not bad, right? <laughs> For the average yeah. band member. And so, you know, you want to sort of cultivate this, this uh, fan base of the real fans. And you don't need to be huge. Yeah. You don't need a big label or big splash. And so when you were talking about like find out how many clients it would take for you to have enough and then really cultivate a, an honest and you know connected relationship with them and you just need this many people that really care about your business it's like wow that's a that's another just lovely take that's quite um counter to so much of the prevailing wisdom about how to do business mm. I just think it's lovely. 
<laughs> well, thank you. So when you, now that you've been initiated into motherhood and you're saying that you don't really know who Carrie is now, I'm curious, uh, how is Carrie as a mother different than Carrie before motherhood? Mm, Carrie is exactly the same. Carrie hasn't changed. It's more about, I don't know what Carrie's life looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the beginning, you know, had a baby who was nursing every hour and that lasted for a really long time. And I just, I hadn't been prepared for how my time would change um, and what it's like to have another being entirely reliant on you for their existence, you know, for, for their health and their um yeah, their growth and, you know, everything, never mind the love and the energy and attention and all of that. So mm-hmm. I just didn't have time to do things that were just about me anymore. And I know everybody said we get prioritized and carve it out and all that. But I think for that period of time, I needed to just focus on figuring out, you know, how to handle a baby. But now that she's a little more independent and there's a bit more space, yeah, I get to see what, I mean, there, there still isn't time for some things that that were part of the pre-motherhood life. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to agree with that initially. But now I'm at a place where there are new pieces that I can bring in. And the pieces that I now sort of have the time and space for, they're really um, essential. You know, it's like when I traveled to India and I could only pack certain things. So I had to choose my clothes in a way that, you know, I could be creative with my outfits and... Um, I could, you know, have the colors that I wanted to reflect my own personality and I could have just those little things, but it required real intention. Mm -hmm. And so life is a lot more intentional now than it ever was. And yeah, it's really, um, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's hard. And it's, and it's, and it's like a huge creative challenge, which (laughs) I love. I just needed to embrace the challenge of it, which took me a little bit of. A transition, but yeah, I'm, I'm there. So looking forward to the age where Eleanor is going to be able to travel, if you could go on mm. a mother-daughter trip anywhere in the world, what would you want her to see? Where would you want her to go and experience? Um, oh, well, I would like to take her to India one day. I'd love to take her to lots of places. I want, I want her to know how people around the world live, mm. and I want her to know people around the world. But I also really want to take her to France because um, she loves cheese and I love cheese and bread. I mean, baguettes. And Paris is my, my, one of my spiritual homes. So yeah, I would have here. to take her there so that she can see, yeah, this is a, this is a place where your mom feels alive. Yes. You know, so uh, I took my husband who'd never been off the continent, actually. He, he, you know, so I, I took him and my daughter to... Uh, Europe last summer for two months. This is like, again, the benefit of being an entrepreneur. You can just kind of yeah. make that work. And uh, and so we spent a, a, a week in Paris and then about a month in the south oh. of France. And uh, it's oh. also, yeah, I lived there when I went to cooking school. So I, I it's also my spiritual home. And I, yeah. I, it was so different sharing 
your sacred mm. home place with the people you love. Mm. And I, there's, mm. a, there's a picture that my husband took of me and we're in the um, Jardin Tuileries in front of the Louvre and the sun is kind of going down and he took a picture of me and I'm just, I'm crying. Like I just have tears <laughs> because it was like, this is the most magical thing. And uh, yeah, I, 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 may you be blessed with that experience mm. with you and your daughter. Okay, so the last question, always on the Numinous podcast, comes from the Proust questionnaire. So, Carrie okay. Clausen, what do you consider perfect happiness? What is perfect happiness? I mean, this is a terrible answer, but I want to say a, a raspberry tart in Paris. Oh, I love it. I know exactly what you're talking about with the creme. That luscious, tangy, and the custard, and the shortbread, and the way your teeth just, you know, go through it. Yeah, and little. Obviously, my daughter's love and my husband's love and all of those things are, you know, they're also perfect (laughs) happiness. And if we can wrap them up into the raspberry tart, there you have it. perfect that I I'm so with you on that it's 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 basically a three-way tie for me as well (laughs) thank you so much for being on the show Carrie it's really lovely to talk to you and hear just stories about you know how you came to be the beautiful creatrix that you are thank you so much for being here thank you for having me it's lovely to chat with you two things I know I need to address about this episode. Number one, I know it wasn't exactly hard-hitting journalism, but it's my show, and if I want to use it as a love letter to Carrie Clausen, I can do that, because I just could love her up all day. She's a fantastic human being, and she makes marketing and the industry of uh, online marketing better. Number two, I know the sound quality wasn't very good. I wish it was better. It it certainly wasn't as good as I would like to uh, honor Carrie and her work, but uh, I could listen to Carrie through cottony VoIP all day. And so thank you very much for uh, enduring that. Thank you to Carrie for coming on the show. And also thank you so much to the listeners in Luxembourg. Moyen, did you know that there's a language uh, called Luxembourgish. Yes, and Moyen is hello in Luxembourgish. They also speak French and German, but those ones are too easy. Thank you very much for your time today. If you would like to know more about Carrie Clausen, uh, the School of Kind Business, or Pink, Ele- Pink Elephant Creative, just go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A, and click the link for the podcast. That's where you'll find all of the show notes and links to the different things we discussed, including that excellent blog post on the Technium called uh, 1000 True Fans. That's also where you can find information about becoming a patron. If you like the show, you can let me know with as little as a dollar an episode. Just click the little button that says become a patron in the show notes. And finally, to ensure that you never miss an episode, just sign up for my newsletter for notifications at the bottom of my website. Until next time, take care.